Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what do you call a whale with bad posture? A humpback whale. What do sloths do at their prom? Slow dance. Past So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist intern Aislinn Oltoff joins us on the show today. Inspired by nature around her and Jane Goodall, Aislinn took a gap year after high school in order to figure out where her interests lie. A pivotal volunteer opportunity working with elephants in Asia firmly pointed her to her degree in wildlife conservation. Not one to sit idly by, Aislinn did quite a bit of traveling and work during her undergrad, including to Costa Rica, Africa, and Paris, France. Then she decided to turn her focus below the surface of the waves and discovered the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. This led her to an amazing position as a naturalist working in close proximity to humpback whales in Hawaii. Aislinn has such a great story and some really great insights into the conservation world and connecting with nature. I am so proud to share this episode with you. Please enjoy. Aislinn, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. Thank you so much. I'm super stoked to be on. This is so fun chatting with you on the show. Cool. So you have a degree in wildlife conservation, which I think is super cool and super fun. How did you even get started in that sphere? Yeah, so I have always loved animals since I was really little. My family had pets and would take me out um, to a really a lot of really natural, beautiful areas um, to see wildlife on whale watches and stuff like that. So my interest in wildlife continued on. And after high school, I decided to take a gap year. Um, So I saved up and I went to Southeast Asia and worked on a couple of wildlife refuges um, with elephants and other animals. And after that, I was I was pretty sure that that is where I wanted to continue on with my career. Yeah. So what were you doing with the elephants in the wildlife conservation? What does that role look like? In Southeast Asia in particular, it does look a lot of different ways because um, wildlife tourism is so huge for their economy. Um, So Mm -hmm. I had to do a lot of research before going because a lot of camps or places you can volunteer, do elephant riding and um, stuff that really Mm -hmm. isn't good for the animals, isn't natural for them. So primarily what I was doing is gathering their food for them, like picking their food, preparing their food. At both refuges, we weren't really allowed to touch the elephants at all. And they had really large enclosures that they could wander around in. So primarily, it was a lot of food preparation, you know, picking up (laughs) their poop. Yeah, nothing really pretty, but it was so much fun. And um, 
yeah, that is the gist of it. I did have the opportunity to go on an elephant rescue with Wildlife Friends Foundation Thailand. Um, so they actually had to buy an elephant from a trekking camp and we brought it all the way back to the refuge. So that was definitely a highlight moment for sure. Yeah, that's wild. So wait, is that the organization that you were with? Yeah, so I started uh, at Elephant Nature Park, um, which is elephants, and then they have about 500 dogs. So I was a dog volunteer there. Um, And then I moved on to Wildlife Friends Foundation Thailand, and they have uh, a plethora of species, uh, but the elephant rescue is with them. That is so cool. That's really fun that you actually got to go and be like, one, one soul saved. Go be free, be in the wild. Yes. <laughs> I will never forget. <laughs> Very cool. So you took a gap year after high school. Why did you decide to go get a degree right after your gap year? Um, I think I was just ready to kind of have some more structure in my life, and I wanted to move on. I think I've always sort of been interested in getting a master's um, because just looking at my dream jobs, even in high school, I saw that the qualifications I needed to meet were a master's degree. <clears throat> so, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't I didn't want to wait any longer to go ahead with that uh, process of getting where I want to be. Fair enough. And what made you choose? I, I don't know why I keep Juniata. Is that how you pronounce the name? Yeah, so I started, I actually started at Denison University, and there I studied biology, and then I moved on to Juniata because I knew I wanted to um, focus a little bit more on wildlife and environmental science, and my brother had actually gone there, and they, that's their main program, so that's why I chose Juniata. Yeah, and you were busy while you were there. I mean, didn't you, you're part of like the Eco House and all the fun organizations there, right? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Juniata is a teeny tiny school. There's only about 1,500 students. And um, Eco House was a community living learning uh, house. And there were about seven of us sort of devoted to raising awareness on how to live more sustainably. So we would have a lot of events where students could come to our house, like vegan potlucks and uh, ways to reduce your plastic intake in your everyday life. And that was Eco House. And yeah, we it, it had sort of come and gone from the university. And um, we kind of pioneered the effort to bring it back um, after about two years of not being on campus at all. So kind of restructuring what it looked like. Very cool. And then after school, you did quite a bit of traveling. Or was this kind of during school? No, this was during school that you did all your traveling, huh? Yeah, it was during school, yeah. All right. All right, so let's chat about it. What was the first stop? Okay, so the first stop while I was at Juniata, um, between my sophomore and junior year, I went to be a sloth technician um, in Costa Rica, <laughs> it's like the best title I've ever, so much. <laughs> I've ever and will ever have in my whole life. Um, <laughs> but it was in Costa Rica what, through the what sloth. Is, what Institute. was your position? I was a sloth tech. Yeah. Did you just get to snuggle sloths all day? Please tell me yes. Um, <laughs> you know, sloths are definitely not as nice or as docile as, as all of those videos we see on the internet. Um, <laughs> no? 
<laughs> no, they can actually be pretty evil, especially two-fingered sloths. So um, there wasn't a lot of cuddling unless they were unless they were babies, and then that did happen a couple of times. Um, so it was very okay. lucky for that. But <laughs> so the older sloths are sassy. Yeah, so the whole goal of the Sloth Institute is to um, understand whether sloths can survive in the wild and sort of function at the same level as wild sloths. Um, So you're comparing, you're researching wild sloths and then sloths that are released, and you're seeing if Mm -hmm. their behavior is comparable. Um, So Mm -hmm. essentially, we had sloths brought in due to electrocution or... um, Dogs are often an issue with wild sloths. Um, So we would Mm. do some of the rehab. And then while I was there um, at the release site, we ended up releasing two adult two-fingered sloths. It was a soft release, meaning that they were in a large enclosure and then the cage was opened um, and they were given as much time as they would like to go into the forest. And they they took their time. I actually never saw them leave. So... (laughs) So they lived up to their name. They did. They did. Their food was easily accessible. So that's kind of where they they wanted to be for as long as possible, I think. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so after sloths, I just love that you were a sloth technician so much. You were you kept with the primates and you worked with some mango monkeys. Why why primates? Did you just like kind of fall in love with them? Mm, yeah, I mean I have always kind of been a little obsessed with Jane Goodall, um, her kind of role in feminism and women women in science. And um, I feel I've always felt really sort of connected to orangutans when I went to the zoo or anything like that. Like, I, I mean, obviously their capacity um, mentally is, is really high. <laughs> yeah, I, I also really like... Um, being able to track and do animal follows, which is what I did with the sloths as well. So monkey work was very similar in that you would be on the ground following them um, throughout their, Mm. the entire day. Um, So this opportunity with some mango monkeys um, provided that. And it was kind of another species to see if um, that was going to be my focus. Yeah. Where was this? So this was in um, sort of northeastern South Africa, um, okay, right outside of a town called Louis Tricard. So like close to Botswana. Yeah, closer to Botswana. Very cool. So we're playing with monkeys, and then you go to France. <laughs> yeah, yes, and then I went to Paris, and I was in an office all day. Um, so a huge, a huge change. I wanted to understand the policy side of work. Um, in conservation as well. I think a lot of my uh, traveling and career has been luckily trying a lot of different things to see where um, I sort of sit with it all. And so this Mm -hmm. policy opportunity was with the Natural History Museum of Conservation Lab. And I was working on a report on the ecology of a red fox or of red foxes um, because they're heavily Mm -hmm. hunted in France so they're trying to figure out whether or not they need new um, management applications. What were some of the results that you had? Do you remember? Mine was kind of a general overall ecology review. So it was a lot of reading scientific articles, 
you know, I had sections on their reproduction, on their habitat. And they're a meso predator. So it was more just kind of like looking over what they're doing. Yeah, just looking. Exactly. Yeah. Their behaviors, their natural history. Yeah. And then we get into the fun part. So you've had all like this world experience, like playing in the jungles and like even some policy side of things, working in the office and like all of this is very terrestrial. What inspired you to shift your focus into the oceanic realm? After college, I, like I said, I knew I would want to go on to grad school, um, but I was still sort of debating whether I wanted to um, focus on terrestrial conservation or marine conservation. I'd never tried marine conservation. I, I'd grown up doing, like I said, like going on whale watches with my family um, most every summer. And I, I just thought the opportunity to work with marine mammals would be the perfect kind of gateway in deciding whether I wanted to focus on marine. So that led me to the podcast and then eventually to Hawaii. So for listeners, this is the super fun part of our conversation. So Aislinn decides that she wants to dive into the marine science world. And how did you find the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast? I think I was um, honestly just looking around on Spotify for podcasts to listen to. Uh, I graduated at during the beginning of the pandemic. So podcasts were kind of my life at that point. And um, yours came up pretty immediately and I started listening and and following you. And then I saw the opportunity to work with you and I was like, this is it, this is my chance. So Aislinn was, was an intern on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. And that's kind of how she made the gap, made the leap from the gap of terrestrial world into to the marine world, which is super fun. Um, and you did. So like while, while you were interning for me, you also were like working on trails in the DC area, which I thought was super fun. Um, and then Aislinn, we hop on our call and she's like, by the way, I got a job in Hawaii playing, playing on boats (laughs) with whales. Surprise. And it was so exciting. It was so exciting. Something I do want to highlight though. I mean, you, you went through a process to get there, right? It wasn't just like you applied to two jobs and you got one of them. Like you went, you applied and you did your research, but it took some time and it took a lot of effort on your part to find this job, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It was, it was the beginning of the pandemic as well. And I think everyone was really struggling then. And I would say I probably applied to like over a hundred jobs or something crazy like that. Like that was my life at this point. Um, so yeah, feel super lucky to have had really meaningful experiences during that process as well, like doing the podcast and being outside. No, but I think that's a really good point because a lot of times people get discouraged, right? You apply to like 10, 15, 20, 30 jobs and you're like, oh my gosh, is this ever going to pan out? But I love that you're persistent. Like you're, you were super persistent. You're like, no, this is what I want. And that's what it takes really like to get what you want. You just don't give up and then you get it. (laughs) Right. But you can't give up. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Never give up. Never give up. Yeah. So let's chat a bit about Hawaii. So you're working for Pacific Whale Foundation. That's the name of the organization, correct? Yes. Awesome. And what were you doing playing on boats 
So I was a naturalist for the Pacific Whale Foundation. Um, We have two seasons here in Hawaii. We have what we call the snorkel season, and then we have whale season, which is between um, like late October and early May. So during whale season, we do whale watches pretty much um, sunrise to sunset. Um, So educating people about, you know, the natural history of humpback whales and conservation or um, environmental uh, threats to to humpback whales. And then during snorkel season, uh, we we do education on the islands and um, conservation in Hawaii the fish that we see when we go out snorkeling. That's super cool. So sunrise to sunset, how many tours are you taking out a day? Um, We would do about five whale watches a day. Yeah. Okay. Um, That's a lot. You get real good at that speech. (laughs) You do. Yeah, you do get good at it. But, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you're throwing some interesting questions every now and then for sure. Oh, okay. What's one or two of the the more interesting questions you were got you received while on the boat? I think I think a lot of people's questions sort of were were beyond anything that I could answer. It's just because like people don't haven't been hump, uh, studying humpback whales for that long um, so far. Mm. So I can't think of a specific one, but it's just something that we don't necessarily. Um, know yet like we would drop a hydrophone in the water uh, during the um, whale watch to pick up the whale song and people would listen to it and they'd be like oh that's a recording and we were like no like that's happening like right under us right now and people would ask what are they saying and uh, you know I wish I knew Um, but that research is still going on so questions like that yeah fair enough Super yeah. cool though that you'd like drop a hydrophone in and you can like you mic them up basically. You mic them up for yeah. a concert. That is so yeah. neat. It's the best, the best part of every whale watch for sure. Is listening to the whales. Yeah, that's super yeah. special. How often did you actually see the whales? Um during peak whale season, especially, uh, it's like whale soup out there. Like we'd see at least, I would say. Um, 10 individuals but multiple groups within that Um, so all the way up until about maybe a month ago we were seeing whales pretty much every day that's amazing that's super cool could were you able to like were you seeing kind of the same ones like could you pick out individuals like were you getting that familiar with their flukes or just like you kind of like sometimes just see them in the distance um, you could you could pick out individuals. Uh, there was actually this one female who had white pectoral fins. Um, if we didn't see her fluke, we kind of knew because of that. And then also because she was so playful. So she would come up to the boats and hang out for about half an hour um, to an hour, honestly. And at that point, when the whale's, you know, under your boat, you really can't move at all. Right. So we would talk about it. There are two different harbors for the Pacific Whale Foundation. So she would kind of go between harbors and do this thing that we call um, being mugged by a whale. (laughs) And um, yeah, she was pretty notorious. So wait, what is being mugged by a whale? She just sat under you so you couldn't move? That's being mugged? Being mugged is when they're within... um, 
I think it's like 50 yards of view, but whenever a whale comes really close to the boat, yeah, there's like a certain number of yards that I can't remember right now, but that's essentially being mugged because you have to turn your engines off and you can't move at all. So it's kind of up to them when, when the tour ends at that point, you know? <laughs> yeah. That is so funny being mugged. I want to be mugged by a humpback whale. I know. I know. Everyone Go always loves that. I know. That's awesome. So I can imagine like you learned probably a ton about humpback whales while doing this. What were some of the like couple of the weirder, crazier, more fun facts that you kind of learned during this position? I guess I would say I had no idea how long their migration was and that the majority of their lives they is spent migrating. Um, so they're coming, the majority, at least in this North Pacific population, is coming all the way down from Alaska, Russia area. Uh, primarily to Hawaii to breed and to have their babies. Um, And that migration takes about 100 days. And then the average adult uh, will only spend about 10 days in Hawaii and then make their way back up. Um, Now, obviously, that's different. If you're having a baby, you'll probably be here for about four to six weeks because the calf has to drink enough milk to build all of that body fat to make the migration back up. Um, but it's crazy Mm -hmm. to me, like how long they stay here versus how long they're actually traveling. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Cause you definitely weigh that out. Like as a human traveling, right? Like, well, if it's, if it's going to take me 10 hours to get there, is is it worth two days? Exactly. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. We like like the travel. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, they also don't eat anything, um, while they are in Hawaii, that was always a trick question on, on whale watches is what do whales eat in these waters? And um, we would say nothing and people would be totally floored. So they can lose up to half their body weight um, throughout this whole migration and, and reproduction process. That's insane. No, I, I had, did not know that. Yeah. Holy cow. So they're not eating for months. Yeah. They're, they're like, like bears do that, but they go in a cave and hibernate. Like, <laughs> I know. Whales and like, oh my gosh. Exactly. That's insane. I know. <laughs> and the mom is still feeding the baby. So she's losing even more. I don't you know how she did that. Constantly. Yeah, I she's know. losing all the weight. It's she's devotion. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's my fun fact for the day. So, I mean, you've traveled a lot. And you've kind of like had a couple of home bases over the last few years. What are some things like similarities or differences or lessons learned during your travels or during, during your whole journey? Yeah. um, I think throughout my journey, my living experience with other people has been one of the most meaningful parts because, um, you know, at least for Costa Rica and South Africa, I was living pretty much in the middle of nowhere with, between five to 10 other people and you, you know, you live together, you eat together, you work together. Um, So that sort of experience where you're all there with this common goal of um, researching a specific species, like, and sharing that um, has been really, really special for me and those relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, Other similarities. 
are, I think just again and again, uh, coming back to the importance of when you, when you travel, like knowing the culture knowing where you're going to a certain extent, um, is what I feel to be a responsibility. So I think that's only come to be more and more true um, for living in Hawaii as well. And mm-hmm. then traveling has also made me appreciate my my home environment more and more and, and made me want to explore all of the different species there. But, and I don't think I would have necessarily done that to the extent that I did during the pandemic, for example, when I was home for a really long time, um, if I hadn't traveled so much and realized how um, my connection with nature, how important that is to me. Yeah, no, I get that. It's super important. I think it's something that people are kind of like reawakening to, like that it is so vital, right? It just feels good because we are like, it's not even that we're connected to nature. We are nature, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Yeah, going out and being in the world feels right because it is. Yeah. (laughs) So you've gone from like maintaining trails outside of DC to snorkeling in some of the best snorkeling conditions in the entire world. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What's what is that like? Like, how is that? How does that feel? Hmm. Obviously, they're very different things, right? Super. Um, But I think that being home and working on trails again, uh, made me feel closer to my own sort of home and Mm -hmm. wanting to protect it. So I think it's been interesting sort of figuring out or looking at the different needs of the environment and then looking at um, all the work that's going on around supporting those needs. Yeah. So, okay. So like what's going on in, what's going on in Hawaii that's like, that are some of the needs and like some of the support that's going on that you're seeing where you're living now? Yeah. So um, tourism is obviously huge in Hawaii um, and there mm-hmm. is a lot of development going on constantly. So um, there are quite a few organizations who work on, on legislation to help, you know, save some of these uh, or protect some of the areas in Hawaii Uh, against development and then in addition to that obviously like there's a lot of work um, into protecting the reefs here and looking Mm -hmm. at the impact that um, everything on land uh, especially around agriculture um, how that Mm -hmm. impacts the reefs so working all the way from the land to the to the ocean that's that's always been a big focus in Hawaiian culture is understanding that they are they are the same thing in a way you can't look at them as separate entities the land and the sea yes yeah no you're right I mean one they they affect each other you know the water sheds into the ocean the ocean provides everything (laughs) so Mm -hmm. like yeah absolutely that makes total sense that's super interesting what's the craziest thing you've seen snorkeling out there I think the most, yeah, the most, I've had a couple of really epic experiences while I'm, we have to hook a a line to the, to a mooring ball. And just while I've been doing that, there's been like a monk seal, like 10 feet from me. And monk seals are uh, really endangered. um, So we don't get to see them that much. So 
just being like doing my work and then looking to the side and seeing a monk seal and being like, oh my God, like I have to finish this task, but I'm freaking out. Um, those have been really cool experiences. And it's happened with like octopus as well. Um, yeah, just swimming in a line. On the morning and seeing, uh, Yeah, just like when you unhook, uh, we also have a stern line as well that we hook to a clip on the floor of the ocean. And just swimming that in, I've seen octopus just at the last moment as I'm passing them. And I think that that's been really amazing as well. Magical place you're living. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a new position and yeah. you haven't started yet. So what, what are you going to be doing now out in Hawaii? Yeah, so I'm going to be working for an organization called Ecology Projects International. And they send students to different um, places around the world um, to learn about the environment and conservation. Um, so I'm going to be uh, an ecology instructor, working with students, taking them to different local organizations around Maui um, and doing field ecology projects. Um, so yeah, I'm super excited for that. That'll be awesome. All right, Aislinn. You're really familiar with this, but I have a series of questions. You ready? Yes. Yes. <laughs> what is your favorite sea creature and why? And this answer can change. Mine changes every day. So. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Oh, this is so predictable, but I probably would say humpback whales. I think in part, they're the one. They're the ones that I've spent, you know, six months learning about. But then also they're so incredibly mysterious, especially um, how they communicate with each other. And their song is like the most mesmerizing thing I've ever heard. And um, I don't know. I think just that sort of the mystery around them and just how intelligent they are definitely make them number one for me. I get that. I get that. How often do you see the babies? The babies are kind of later in the season. So we would see them, I don't know, I would say at least once a week I would see a mom calf pair. Yeah, definitely, definitely pretty often. What does the ocean mean to you? The ocean means a lot of things to me. I think uh, since I was younger, it was a place to kind of explore my limits and and play and I think that still kind of stands true because I've I've been trying to learn how to surf and I think that the only way to do that is just keeping keep going out day after day and, and sort of learning the ocean yes and that's kind of a vulnerable thing you know because you uh constantly get knocked down and waves will barrel you and um I think it's I think it's uh, really special to be that vulnerable and you can kind of see the power of nature in the ocean a lot more like clearly and, and right in your face than you can with a lot of other things. So the ocean is freedom and also a place of so much mystery for for us humans. That's true. That's a really good point, though, with surfing, because people traditionally like like to swim in calm waters. But when you surf, you definitely know the power of the ocean. And if you're learning to surf, <laughs> your rite of passage is to eat a lot of foam. <laughs> yes, it's very humbling, for sure. It is yeah. so humbling. 
but it's fun. It's so, yeah, it's so fun. It's worth it. It's worth it to get knocked down a lot. <laughs> That's awesome. Are you on a longboard then? I am. I think I'll always be on a longboard, but I'm okay with that, I think. <laughs> yes. When I was younger, I was like, yeah, no, shortboards, longboards for old people, blah, blah. Maybe I'm old now. I'm like, whatever. I want my longboard. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so many people here surf with a longboard, so you don't feel as out of place because it's. I feel like it's pretty common to longboard. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So you establish the surfing and the next step is hanging 10. Exactly. <laughs> One day. I see those toes on the nose, Aislinn. That'd be sweet. <laughs> I'll send you a picture, hopefully, or video. That'd be epic. That would be epic. All right. If you had a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for? So this is the question that I struggled with the most. Um for sure and obviously I knew it was coming so it's not something I haven't thought about for a long time but um, I think more and more I've been interested in learning about and supporting like indigenous-led community conservation projects I think I would just like to, to to lead a project that recognizes and financially supports technically supports an indigenous community because though it's not necessarily, protected land federally actually been found that the there's like more biodiversity on land protected by indigenous people and and way less deforestation Mm -hmm. so it's already there it's already happening i just don't think it's at the forefront of people's minds when it comes to environmental goals and and conservation decisions so i can't say exactly what that's gonna look like yet but that's my my future goal is to support indigenous knowledge being used in conservation more and more. Especially if the cultures there have like kept their stories, right. And like passed that down and kept the connection to the land. Like, and they must have, if their you know, biodiversity is higher than everywhere else, like it makes perfect sense. So they've kept the connection that the Western world or the developed world really has kind of lost. So reestablishing that. I dig it. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite field story or stories to tell? This could be epic day in the water or epic day, you know, playing with sloths. Or it could just be a day where things happened and it makes a really great story now. <laughs> or both. Yeah, I mean, I there have been a lot of amazing moments throughout all of my wildlife experiences. I would say the one that comes to mind is happened in South Africa. I was on a monkey follow. So we were following a troop of like maybe 30 monkeys and we had to do scans, behavior scans on them every 15 minutes. So that meant we couldn't lose them. That's like a really short period of time. Um, But obviously monkeys are a lot more agile than humans. And there was this one point at kind of the very end of the day. So we were so close. And if you don't get all of your scans in, if you do lose them, then that day of data kind of gets tossed out. We were so close to the end. I think we had maybe like four more scans to do. And we'd been up since like five in the morning following these monkeys and they went up a cliff. And I mean, I was like, 
delirious and tired. Um, I'd been in the sun all day. I was like, yeah, I'll just like go up the cliff. I'll just follow them. And my friend was like, there's no way, like, there's no way you're going to make it up that cliff. So we like took a deep breath. We um, got in touch with the office because we had walkie talkies and we were like, please send someone down to this location as soon as possible. The other side of the cliff that was um, actually accessible from above and take the scan and then we'll just add it to the day. I think that moment in particular was just really like funny and humbling because it's not always going to work out and it wasn't a loss at all. Like we were able to figure out a solution and I think we just took a moment. I played Beyonce, like we looked out on the mountains and just kind of started laughing and we were like, we were so caught up in it. But yeah, we just really needed to kind of get back in reality. Like this is going to happen sometimes. I like it. Problem solving in the fields and it worked out. Yes. I'm glad the story wasn't like, yeah, I got halfway up the cliff and fell off and broke my arm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It could easily could have been that if I didn't have a partner. All right. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation topic or ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like the audience to take from your episode? I think I sort of touched on this a little bit already, but I think choosing an, a place in the world and learning about indigenous culture and conservation is really important. And I think it's going to change a lot of people's perspective on how they interact with the environment as well, which... I think is the first step towards feeling like you're getting somewhere with conservation work is by having that mm. connection. So that, and I think that that can also be tied to just getting involved in projects locally. There's a lot of citizen science out there that people can be a part of. And it's, it's empowering to like look around and see how many people are chipping away, you know, even outside of their, their job in a completely different field. They're spending some of their free time counting some specific bird species for a population assessment and stuff like that is really important and should be celebrated. Getting involved and yeah, just knowing what's out there. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you or your work, where's the best place to do so? Yeah, so um, I can give you my email. Uh, I love talking to people about what they're interested in, like job internship wise. They need help with that. And then Don't you in have addition Twitter? to that, I do have a Twitter. It's not very active, but I do have a Twitter and then I also have a Facebook. Okay. We'll put links and to then that in I'm, the show notes for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm planning on making cool. an Instagram for just wildlife related things. So I will send that to you as soon as that project is up and running. Cool. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, Aislinn, this was super fun. Oh, I never <laughs> thought this would happen. Thank you for being on the show. It was really fun chatting with you. Thank you so much, Kara. It's been wonderful. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there.
Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.